Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, my name is Priya Krishna, and my cookbook is Indianish Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. This is not your traditional Indian cookbook. This is a love letter to your trailblazing mom who is depicted as Rosie the Riveter on the cover. When did it hit you to organize this family project? Well, the book really wasn't, honestly, wasn't my idea. You know, I never thought about doing a cookbook about my family recipes. I'm very much like a a, a utilitarian, a utility cookbook kind of person. And then I was approached by a cookbook editor who'd worked on the cookbooks for Lucky Peach, where I'd previously worked. And my mom had contributed a few recipes. I'd kind of told her some stories about how amazing and put together and, you know, just accomplished my mother was. And she came to me and she was like, you know, I'm interested in a cookbook that not only tells this really modern story about what it means to be a working mother, what it means to be, to grow up in a family where your parents are immigrants, but also that provides a really accessible entry point into Indian cuisine. Like she was like, I don't think that there's a cookbook like that for young people, that people can flip through the recipes and not be intimidated by the ingredient lists. And that totally is my mom's food. This is the food that she learned to cook when she immigrated here and that she had to cook when she only had 20 minutes to put dinner on the table on a weeknight. So it all kind of fit together beautifully. And once I started writing the proposal, I realized that that there was really something there. By the way, we all miss Lucky Peach. <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at my collection right now. It was really special. They are so expensive on eBay. <laughs> By the way. It's so funny because I feel like that was the founder's vision that the magazines would be collectibles, but maybe not perhaps in this in this exact way. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think there's a myth that Indian food is hard to make? I have no idea, to be honest. Like, I don't know where this came from. I think maybe it's because of the spices people get very intimidated by. Um but but I don't I don't know. I mean, I suppose that most of our knowledge about Indian cuisine was shaped by um, the British. The British were some of the first people to sort of codify Indian cuisine for the West. And, um, you know, I suppose that they sort of exoticized it in a way and perhaps made it seem a little bit esoteric. But, you know, it's so funny because, you know, I grew up with Indian food as my everyday food. This was the food that we threw together at the last minute. You know, it it wasn't complicated. Every dish had two or three spices in it, but it's no different than a soup that calls for like bay leaf and rosemary and peppercorns, you know? And now um, I'm so happy that grocery stores now have these full suites of spices. So you can really get most of the ingredients at your average grocery store. Indianish was never supposed to be the title of this cookbook, but the title seems so perfect. What other titles were you kicking around? like really terrible ones. I, <laughs> I remember like sitting on this like bench at my gym and like having this mini brainstorm session. There was like one that was like cool mom recipes or like mom and daughter or like Indian mom. Like I, it was just, I had, they were just <laughs> terrible, terrible ideas. And finally I just gave up and I slapped Indianish on the proposal and I wrote better title coming soon below and then we went into all of these meetings with publishers and every single one was like, my favorite part is the title. Like, 
if we buy this book, that title needs to stay. And it just, yeah. And it just stuck. (laughs) I love it. You describe your mom's cooking as 60% traditional Indian, 40% Indian plus something else, and mostly vegetarian. Talk a little bit about this. Yeah. I mean, so my mom, her mother didn't really care much for cooking. It's, you know, in my mom's age, it was traditional for women to learn how to cook. My mom never learned how to cook. So she arrived in America and all she really knew was how to make roti. Um, so she started watching, you know, PBS cooking shows, people like Martin Yan and Jacques Pepin and combine that with, um, her, uh, her memories of her mother, her grandmother's cooking, the flavors that she loved. And she basically was learning to cook while she was in America, while she was having this job as a software programmer for the airline industry that was required to travel around the world. So she was learning to cook as she was getting all of these influences. So while her memories were rooted in the Indian food she had growing up, she was, you know, tasting pesto pasta and pizza and spanakopita for the first time. And, you know, obviously when you're having all those experiences, you can't help but incorporate that into your cooking. You kicked off this cookbook with frequently asked questions like, why are there no curries in this cookbook? (laughs) And what are your thoughts on peeling things? Or the last question is, why should I trust you? (laughs) Yeah, I I love a good fake FAQ. Yeah, it's actually inspired by um, Mindy Kaling. Her very first memoir is Everybody Hanging Out With Me and Other Questions. She started it off with a fake FAQ, and I just thought it was so (laughs) funny. And it was sort of a chance to preempt, like it was her chance of like preempting haters. And I kind of, like loved that concept. And, uh, so, you know, I started writing like, what are the questions that I want people to ask so I can like shut them down? (laughs) And that was how the fake FAQ was born. So why should we trust you? The first half of that is my mother who is not only a gifted recipe writer, but just an insanely talented cook. Like I, I really do feel like there are cooks who have gotten good because they practice a lot. And there are cooks who are just intuitive in the kitchen. And my mom has unbelievable intuitions. Like this is food that sort of reaches that elusive middle point between accessible and hyper flavorful and creative. Um, The second thing is I worked really hard at these recipes. Like they have been tested by me, my mom retested by me. I had like over a hundred recipe testers, all amateur cooks test each and every single one of these recipes. And the ones that didn't get good feedback were nixed. Every single recipe was sort of finessed and judged over and over and over again. So, you know, whenever I do any kind of project, I feel like I am the person who's going through with a fine tooth comb. So, you know, this definitely feels like that. And these, these recipes feel airtight to me. Yeah, you had two whole pages of thanks to your recipe testers in the back. That was one of my favorite parts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up your dad. Mm -hmm. Who needs store-bought yogurt when we have the recipe for your dad's yogurt? Describe this. (laughs) So we have been eating my dad's yogurt basically for as long as I can remember. My dad has been making it homemade using a culture he's been perpetuating for over three decades. Um, 
And, you know, there is nothing like his yogurt. I think my dad once described it as yogurt that tastes alive. It has this chunkiness, this tanginess. It is just so good. I'm like, my mouth is watering right now thinking about it. Um, and you know, the house was never without homemade yogurt. And I mean, if you try store-bought yogurt and you try my dad's, it's just, it's not even a comparison. Your dad wrote in the cookbook, my yogurt is fabulous. I have a cup a day. It keeps my system nice and regular. What more could you want? (laughs) He's a guy of simple tastes. He loves his yogurt and, you know, he wants to have a regular system. (laughs) Don't we I all? love that line. I just, that essay is one of another, one of my favorite parts of the book is just like my dad at his most earnest. And it's just, I love it. <laughs> he looks so happy in the pictures. Yeah, I love that was, that also was everyone's favorite part of the photo shoot. My dad needed no, he needed no direction. He just got on camera and just immediately just knew what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of yogurt, talk about the idea of putting yogurt into a sandwich. So this is a recipe that uh, is very much one of those, I mean, it's like the grilled cheese sandwich, that sort of back pocket recipe that a lot of Indian moms and Indian dads have when there's nothing else in the fridge. Um, The idea is that you mix yogurt, once you mix yogurt with cilantro and onion and uh, chilies, you spread it on sourdough bread and you griddle it. And what happens is the yogurt retains its tang, but also takes on the flavors of those other things you've mixed it in. It sort of becomes thick, like almost like a thick strained ricotta. Um, And then you griddle it just like a grilled cheese. Then you top it with curry leaves and mustard seeds that have been tempered in oil. And this is called bahitos. And it's one of the most famous breakfasts in our house. And I like to think of it as like an Indian-ish grilled cheese sandwich, but it's so much better. One of the many things I learned from you is something called chonk, which Mm -hmm. is uh, one of the fundamentals of Indian cuisine. What is chonk and what do you put it on? Chonk is basically the idea of tempering spices and or herbs in oil or ghee to bring out their flavors and aromatics and to give texture to a dish. It's something you finish a dish with that you pour over the top. It adds richness. It adds flavor. Um, it's just amazing. And to answer your second question, I think a better question is like, what can't you put chonk on? <laughs> As I've experimented throughout the cookbook process, I found that chonk tastes good on pretty much everything. Like, obviously I put it on dal, I put it on subzi, but I also put it on top of salad, like on top of raw vegetables. I'll put it on top of roasted vegetables, noodles, nachos, a steak, like instead of a compound butter, put like a, put a chonk on top. Like it is just like, it is sort of just this ingenious Indian cooking technique that has near universal applicability. I heard you say once, chonk is life. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) It is our life. I mean, it's so funny too, because it is something like, that I totally took for granted when we were growing up. My mom would, it was, she would, it's called chonko. She would chonko the doll, and that meant that dinner was almost ready. And I only cared about chonk insofar as when she was making chonk, it meant it was almost time to eat, and I'd usually be starving. Um, but then as I as we got older, I realized like chonk is this amazing. It's it's really just like such a smart idea that you know, once you've flavored a dish, you've got something and you want to add just another layer of 
of interest, you add chonk. You know, Indian food, especially like dals and stews, it can often have like a very homogenous texture. And so you add chonk. So you get like a crunch of a cumin seed or a chili partway through. It's just very satisfying. Last December, you had a recipe in your Indianish column in Bon Appetit, which was one of your party tricks, a vegetarian sloppy joe called Pav Baji, probably mm-hmm. killing the uh, pronunciation. Um, but I've never seen an open-faced sandwich quite like this. Can you describe it? Sure. Uh, it's basically a toasted buttered bun topped with a gravy made of cauliflower, potatoes, peas, and tomatoes. And it is just a very classic Indian street food. You'll find it in Bombay. Putting things on buttered buns is very standard practice on the streets of Bombay. And it's, and you know, once you put the gravy on, you top it with lime, you top it with onions. It's sort of this beautiful marriage of Sprite, spicy, hot, tangy flavors. Like it is just addictive. And my aunt Sonia makes the absolute best bao bhaji I've ever had. And thankfully I was able to get her recipe. <laughs> it sounds so good. And what? it's a great vegetarian entree. And you know, it's like a carb on a carb, which what more could you ask Hello. for? <laughs> <laughs> when making cilantro chutney, what's your mom's philosophy about using stems and the leaves? She is pro stems. One, because she is anti-wasting anything. Two, because the stems have water that helps get the blades growing. Going, And the stems actually have a lot of flavor. Like discarding the stems, the stems sometimes have even more flavor than the leaves do. And I feel like sometimes people hate like the texture of the stems in their in your mouth. But when you're making cilantro chutney, it's all sort of getting whizzed around in the blender anyways. So and it makes your job easier. You just dump everything in instead of having to pick the leaves off. What is one recipe in the cookbook that isn't a riff off something else? One that's uniquely your mom's? I would say uh, her pindi, which I love. It's okra. Um, okra is a very standard sabzi made in Indian cuisine. And, you know, it was one of those special occasion only dishes that she made. And we loved it. You know, I feel like okra has this reputation. It's it's slimy. It has a yes. weird texture. But when my mom cooks it or when mo- when most Indians cook it like a sabzi, they sort of doing something like dry frying it a bit. And so you're just cooking it on really, really high heat with oil and it chars and crisps and it loses all of that sliminess and it gets coated with these lovely caramelized onions and seasoned with a joine, which sort of tastes like earth and oregano. And it is just so delicious. And that is one of those recipes that is a total classic and we did not want to mess with at all. Immigrants come to this country and can't find ingredients they're looking for. So they find substitutes and beautiful discoveries like your mom's sog paneer, which I made over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the idea to replace paneer with feta. When my mom came here, she, you, you can make paneer, but you know, it's, it takes a little bit of time. So she was always looking for substitutes. You know, she found mozzarella, she found tofu, and then my family went to Greece and my mom had you know, Greek salads and which had those huge hunks of feta. And she just loved that briny, salty taste. And, you know, we had had spanakopita, which has spinach and feta. And she thought, you know, spinach and feta are sort of a match, a match made in heaven. So she tried making her regular sog. And then instead of putting, um, you know, paneer or tofu or any of the other substitutes, um, she tried putting big cubes of feta. And the feta not only salts the dish, but 
it just adds this totally other layer that you're not expecting. And I was so skeptical when I first tried it, but you know, it got to the point where I, I like sag paneer, but I just adore sag feta. I dream about it. It is just so addictive. I've never drizzled lime juice over spinach. Is that uh, the usual ingredient in sag paneer or did your mom do that? We just are a family that loves acid. I think that a lot of Indian dishes like lack that bright acid component and they just feel a little too, a little too, uh, I don't want to say heavy, but just a little too rich in terms of the spicing component. So we're not, I'm not sure what's traditional or not, not traditional, but we tend to go pretty heavy on the lime. <laughs> <laughs> I also made your recipe for chickpea and tomato stew on page 153. What makes this a shortcut recipe? Chole traditionally, which is made from dry chickpeas. It takes hours and hours and hours. It's not a quick thing, but I love chole so much. And so when I was in college and I was craving my mother's chole, she developed this recipe that I could make in my teeny tiny apartment. And so one winter, um, she sent me this and I bought all the ingredients and I just make this chole over and over and over again. And it, you know, it only takes about 30, 35 minutes to, to put together. And, um, it's a really filling meal. And then it sort of just became, my go-to. Um, and it just does all these, it has all these great tricks to it. Like, you know, she boiled chole down to its essential spices. So it's, it's got all of the complexity of the, of, you know, the really standout spice of the dish. And then instead of waiting for the, the chickpeas to thicken, which takes hours, she mixes in yogurt, which sort of naturally adds that like thick, luscious element that you get from chickpeas, chickpeas that have been cooking for a really long time. And she uses a can of chickpeas which, you know, is works totally fine in this recipe. And who has time to, you know, stare at a pot for hours as chickpeas <laughs> cook? Chole is life. That's my new saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also made uh, Anvita's dump cake on page 207. And I'm so glad you made that. You wrote, it made me laugh. You wrote in the book, you're probably wondering why in this book of pseudo-Indian foods is there a recipe for a 1940s era American dessert and who the heck is Anvita? <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little bit about this dish. This dish is so near and dear to my heart. I knew the minute I signed the book proposal that I needed this recipe. Um my uh, aunt, Anvita, she's my mom's cousin. She, um, when we used to visit her in Michigan, um, this was sort of the dessert that she would make all the time. And it was taught to her by another family member um, as something that was really quick, that served a crowd, that didn't require dirtying up more than one pan. You could use pre-made cake mix. And, you know, it's so funny. I don't love nuts in my dessert. I don't love that, like, sort of artificial tasting pie filling, but somehow in this recipe, all of these things work so nicely and served with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. It is just perfect. I couldn't find canned cherry pie filling, so I used blueberry, but it was still really, really good. Yeah, I mean I imagine with any any berry filling that would taste that would taste great. Now for my segment called My Last Meal. Mm -hmm. What would you have for your last supper? I would probably have uh like a first course of dosa and the dosa would like have on the side, probably like all of my mom's greatest hit subsies, like her sweet and sour squash, her, 
uh, her paneer, her sog feta. Um, there'll probably be a course of roti pizza, which is in the book. And then after that, I think it would just be like noodles of the world. Like there'd have to be an Indian course, but then I just want noodles. Like I want a cacio e pepe. I want a like cow soy with like those thick noodles. I want like soba. I want some ravioli. I just want carbs. (laughs) Basically, the theme of this meal is carbs in many forms. Dosa followed by roti pizza followed by noodles. (laughs) Where can we find you on the web and social media? Well, so my website is priyakrishna.me, um, but the, the easy best way to find me is on Instagram or Twitter, and I'm at pkgourmet, P-K-G-O-U-R-M-E-T. This has been so much fun, Priya. Thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was great. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.